Good evening. Putin declares victory in Mariupol. Biden says not so fast. The United States walks out of the G20 to protest Russia. The ignored crisis in Yemen faces a turning point and hopes of peace. The battle against climate change heads to Albany and millions of dollars in opioid settlement money flows to New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed victory in the biggest battle of the war in Ukraine today, declaring the port city of Mariupol liberated after nearly two months of siege. Nevertheless, hundreds of fighters and civilians were still holed up inside a huge steelworks. Putin ordered his troops to blockade the complex so that not even a fly, he said, could escape. And President Joe Biden said he thought a clean Russian victory in the city was doubtful. First of all, it's questionable whether he does control Mariupol. One thing for sure we know about Mariupol, he should allow humanitarian corridors to let people on that steel mill and other places are buried under rubble to get out, to get out. That's what any, any, any head of state would do in such a circumstance. There is no evidence yet that Mariupol is completely fallen. And uh, that was President Biden. The U.S. State Department says the Russians claim of taking the city is in their words, disinformation and a show for the media. Meanwhile, Washington authorized another $800 million in military aid for Ukraine, including heavy artillery. Again, President Biden. Today, I'm announcing another $800 million to further augment Ukraine's ability to fight in the east in the Donbass region. This package includes heavy artillery weapons, dozens of howitzers, and 144,000 rounds of ammunition to go with those howitzers. It also includes more tactical drones. In the past two months, we've moved weapons and equipment to Ukraine at record speed. We won't always be able to advertise everything we, uh, that our partners are doing to support Ukraine and fight for freedom. But to modernize Teddy Roosevelt's famous advice, sometimes we will speak softly and carry a large javelin because we're sending a lot of those in as well. With this latest disbursement, I've almost exhausted the drawdown authority I have that Congress authorized for Ukraine in a bipartisan spending bill last month. In order to sustain Ukraine for the duration of this fight, next week I'm going to have to be sending to Congress a supplemental budget request to keep weapons and ammunition flowing without interruption to the brave Ukrainian fighters who continue to deliver economic assistance to the Ukrainian people. That's the president again. World Bank President David Malpass estimates physical damage to Ukraine's buildings and infrastructure had reached nearly 60 billion and would rise further as the war continues. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky asked the World Bank today to punish Russia and make it pay what he said was $500 billion in damages caused to Ukraine by the war. We need immediately uh, to exclude Russia from all international financial institutions, IMF, World Bank and others. Those are, that's not the place for a country that is trying to build the life of a neighborly oh, Sorry nation. about that. Number you can three. bring that down. So uh, basically he said what I just said anyway. So uh, let's jump ahead to meanwhile – the uh, Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, walked out of a G20 meeting as Russia's finance me uh, minister spoke. The walkout came as the United States and its allies spend the opening days of spring meetings held by uh, the World Bank and International Monetary Fund grappling with how to contain the fallout from Russia's war in Ukraine. Yellen explained her reaction 
at a news conference afterwards. In the meeting, I shared the United States' commitment to another $500 million of immediate funding to help Ukraine continue critical government operations. We know this is only the beginning of what Ukraine will need to rebuild. I think it simply cannot be business as usual for Russia in terms of its participation in our global forums and my decision along with that of others to leave when the Russian uh, finance minister began to speak was intended to make clear that Russia's behavior is so offensive to international norms that we're not willing to allow Russia to participate or to listen to what the Russians have to say. And that was Janet Yellen. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken today encouraged Yemen's new leaders since another war that's going on that's getting a lot less media coverage, but with big things happening. So Blinken today encouraged Yemen's new leaders to work. uh, And the new leader is one that was appointed by the Saudi government, which is one of the people who were involved in the war against the current government, the Houthi government in Ukraine, uh, in Yemen. Uh, Encourage Yemen's new leader to work toward a lasting peace amid rare bright spots after seven years of devastating war. Blinken spoke by telephone with Rashad al-Alimi, who heads the new council running the Saudi-backed government, and the former president uh, handed over power after the former president handed over power. Blinken voiced support for United Nations brokered two-month truce between the government and Iranian-backed Houthi rebels that has largely held since April 2nd, the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Meanwhile, 70 anti-war groups have signed on to a letter in what they call an effort to strengthen the recently announced temporary truce and further incentivize Saudi Arabia to stay at the negotiating table. The groups urge Congress to co-sponsor and publicly support Representative Jayapal and DeFazio's forthcoming war powers resolution to end U.S. military participation in the Saudi-led coalition's war in Yemen. Kothar Abdullah is the New York chapter leader of the Yemeni alliance. She points out that the hypocrisy is obvious between the reaction to the eight-week-long war in Ukraine and the lack of reaction, the eight-week war in Ukraine and the lack of reaction to the eight-year-long war in Yemen in the right direction to ensure that this truce continues on to a permanent, long-lasting peace in Yemen. It's imperative that the U.S. passes a war resolution to ensure Saudi Arabia stops bombing Yemen. Uh, We don't support them with logistics support. We don't support them with... Saudi Arabia. Yes. Do you have hope that this is real, the ceasefire? I would like to be hopeful. If that's the only thing that's going to keep us going, it is a step in the right direction and it is make it easier for us to be hopeful. The war, it's been eight years now. This, it's not doing any good for Saudi Arabia, the UAE or the U.S. It's only hurting Yemen further and further. It's about time. We only have hope to hold on, honestly. And something that even my family back home would like to believe, even though and can be very pessimistic at times. The forces that want to continue this war are tied into powerful economic interests. So that's becoming more clear by the day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The people who are benefiting from this war is lawmakers here in the U.S. General Dynamics, Boeing, and other war manufacturers have been making weapons billions and billions of dollars. These weapons are landing on Yemeni homes, hospitals, farms, 
you name it, anything and everything resourceful that's found, that is being bombed in Yemen by the Saudi UAE-led coalition, they can be traced back to the U.S. The war in Ukraine has gotten a lot more attention in a shorter period of time. Why do you see that? Why is there a difference? Of course, racism, Islamophobia, and those are definitely just we can't ignore that because Russia is not. It's an foe to the U.S. You see the U.S. rallying against invasion, a regional power invading a smaller country. And while in Yemen, it supports the opposite. It's supporting the same situation, the same scenario, where it's a, a regional power supporting it, invading and violating Yemen for almost eight years now. This goes back to, like, who is the oppressor, who is benefiting economic interests, but also there are other, like, economic and political interests as well. What can our listeners at WBAI do? Urge your Congress members, your representatives, to vote for a war powers resolution, donate to Yemeni-led organizations who are doing the work inside of Yemen. Over 20 million people are rely on international aid for survival. And just really spread the word about Yemen. Be involved. Join the campaigns. Join the anti-war movement. Kothar Abdullah, she's a New York chapter leader of the Yemeni Alliance. In Yemen today, roughly 20.7 million people are in need of humanitarian aid for survival, with up to 19 million Yemenis acutely food insecure. A new report indicates that 2.2 million children under the age of five are expected to suffer from acute malnutrition over the course of 2022 and could perish without urgent treatment. The view across the pond of national politics here in America Throughout Donald Trump's presidency, commentator, former newsman, troublemaking provocateur Piers Morgan was one of Trump's most loyal lackeys, never one to get caught up on pesky matters like truth, human decency or journalistic integrity. Morgan could be counted on to parrot Trump's talking points, defending him against allegations that even the Sean Spicers and Scaramucci's didn't want to go near. But during Trump and Morgan's latest sit-down interview, something went horribly awry. In fact, things became so tense that Trump stormed out of the room mid-conversation. Here's a promo for the interview containing some choice comments by the former president. Here's I'm ready. A former president in denial. I'll be completely straight with you. your face. I think I'm a very honest man. Much more honest than you, actually. Really? Yeah. It was a free and fair You lost. Only a fool would think You think I'm a fool? I do now, yeah. With respect. Excuse me. Okay, with respect. The legislature. the hard evidence. Excuse me. The most explosive interview of the year. I don't think you're real. It's I'm, just, I'm not like Very dishonest. Let's finish up the interview. Morgan versus Trump. Turn the camera off. Very dishonest. Only on Talk TV. Trump's camp is now arguing that the preview clips were misleading and the former president didn't storm out of the interview. Trump has now released a seven-minute audio clip, which says uh, he says serves as evidence that the interview ran long and ended on civil terms. That was a great interview, Trump can be heard saying on the tape. And uh, you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In local news, or in, I should say New York State news, on Friday morning, tomorrow morning, New York climate activists will board buses organized by Food and Water Watch to travel to Albany for an Earth Day climate protest. Yes, tomorrow, I believe, is, climate, is uh, Earth Day. And Friday's protest comes on the heels of a now-or-never United Nations report, which lays out the urgent need to move off fossil fuels as quickly as possible to avert climate catastrophe. In Albany... 
Activists from Climate Can't Wait will demand prompt passage of the All-Electric Building Act and 11 other pieces of critical climate change. 43 Climate Can't Wait groups collectively representing hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers, they say, cite two years of climate inaction from state leaders and a failure for legislative leaders to come to the table on critical statewide move off from fossil fuels and new construction in the New York State budget earlier this month. We spoke with the uh, uh, director of climate of the climate activist group Food and Water Watch. His name is Alex Beecham. In some ways, it's the same old problem, right? I think corporate interests continue to be far too powerful. One thing that's interesting is the dynamic in the legislature is kind of flipped. So in the budget that just passed, it seems as though the assembly was the stumbling block more than more than the Senate and even more than the governor who are willing to come to the table to do things like pass a ban on fossil fuels and new buildings. For whatever reason, the assembly wouldn't budge in that budget negotiations. Now we're post-budget. You've got two months, a little less than that, to get whatever we're going to get done this year. And it seems pretty clear that we're going to need a, a huge amount of pressure on the assembly to get anything through this legislature to, to seriously address climate change. So that's the hope. We're going to have to keep coming back to Albany and keep exerting pressure because together we think we're more powerful than the corporate polluters, but certainly they have been exerting a lot of influence, it seems. The 11 bills that are being considered that you mentioned at the top, the All-Electric Building Act, is that because it's the most important or just came first in the list? Both, maybe. So it came first. It's a live thing this year. We could really get it done. There, there's other crucial bills that we need passed, though. There's an important teacher's divestment bill. We're trying to divest the teacher's fund from fossil fuels. We've made some real headway on divestment, both at the city and the state level, and so that the teachers would be the next logical place to continue to attack fossil fuels that way. We desperately need more money. <laughs> Basically, we passed a huge climate bill some years back. And we essentially haven't funded it for years. To the extent it's funded, it's the ratepayer money, which is even more regressive than most other ways we could fund it. It's certainly more regressive than income tax. And so if Albany continues to not fund the just transition, not only are we not going to make the changes we need at the pace we need to make them, but also it's going to be on the backs of poor and middle class New Yorkers instead of funding it in a progressive manner. That piece is really, really crucial, too, and we've made essentially no headway in Albany on that for years, and so it's time, we think, to sort of ramp the pressure up. Do they accept in Albany the idea of that there is socially impacted groups who are more socially impacted by, let's say, climate change and these other things we're talking about? There's been some interesting developments on that and some defining down of like what a climate justice community really means. So the, the Climate Action Council has a draft map out now, which is progress because for years they have essentially refused to define it. And so one big part of the climate fight has been to say we need the benefits for those communities most impacted by the problem. And they said in the law that a certain percentage of climate money will go to those communities and then hadn't actually defined what those communities are. So there's at least some movement there, but even that has been painfully slow. You know, three years passed since we since we passed the, the CLCPA, the, the state landmark climate law. The climate report that came out made some pretty dire predictions if uh, people don't get going now. Is Albany awake? Are they hearing this message? It's too early to tell, right? I mean, the session's not over yet. We think we could still pass some real pieces of legislation this year, but... 
You're right. The report was dire. Their quote was, it's now or never. And that is our message to Albany leaders tomorrow. We need you to take action now if another year passes without real action on climate change. The movement is going to be furious. And frankly, there will be political implications for a lot of sitting assembly members, sitting senators who have primaries from the left. They need to take action now. And that's the clear message for tomorrow. Alex Beecham, he's the director of uh Food and Water Watch. They're heading up to Albany tomorrow, as you just heard, uh, departure of two buses of climate activists traveling to Albany for an Earth Day rally calling for Governor Hochul to pass that statewide gas ban and 11 other pieces of critical climate legislation in her state budget is leaving tomorrow morning at 645 in the morning. Activists will gather across from the TikTok Diner at 34th Street and 8th Avenue in New York City in Midtown. And New York Attorney General Letitia James and New York City Mayor Eric Adams today announced the first of up to $256 million going to New York City beginning this week to combat the opioid crisis that continues to ravage communities across the city. To address record overdose rates, New York City will receive $88.9 million this year. $11.5 million of that this week alone to fund opioid prevention and treatment programs at all five boroughs. The funds are the first round of payments from the $1.5 billion that Attorney General James secured for the state from the historic settlements with manufacturers and distributors of opioids. New York City, as reported, will receive up to $256 million in total over the years as part of the settlement for opioid abatement. She spoke earlier today, standing in front of the drug treatment facility at Bellevue Hospital. New York City will receive more than $88.9 million. This represents the majority of the money that New York City will receive in the year 2022. And the first portion of the total amount of money that New York City will receive, $256 million that the five boroughs will get overall over a period of time. And I want to be clear, this is just the beginning. Our work is not done. We still have ongoing litigation. Um, But it's really critically important that uh, these funds get to New York City because it means that we can save lives starting today and tomorrow. It means that there are more resources, primarily to teach our young people about the dangers of drugs and opioids in particular, to talk to individuals about fentanyl and how dangerous that is and how that has resulted in a significant number of people losing their lives, and to prevent someone from misusing a prescription for the first time, and to teach individuals who are in the throes of addiction, struggling with addiction, and to save lives from people who are dying from an overdose by distributing Narcan to law enforcement officers. And also it means, as a law enforcement officer, working with NYPD and law enforcement officers all across the state of New York to interdict drugs as they come into the state of New York. And it also means that we can support programs like the ones here at Bellevue, which provide a range of in and outpatient treatment and counseling services. Because we all know that 2020 was the deadliest year for overdoses our country has experienced. So there's no dollar amount that can make up for what we've already lost. No amount of money that can make up for the loss of loved ones, for children, parents, for individuals that have had to pray over and hold funerals all throughout the state of New York. And we need to prevent drug companies from this deception in the future and to hold them accountable. And that's Attorney General Letitia James. 
And New York City Mayor Eric Adams was there. He said Big Pharma raked in billions of dollars while people's lives were lost and destroyed from opioids. He said one New Yorker dies from opioid overdose every four hours. And too many have suffered from death and addiction. And too many families and communities have been torn apart. He had this to say as well. Many of our boroughs are ground zero for these issues, Staten Island, Brooklyn, and others. And so this is so important to complement what volunteers and people are doing on the ground. The attorney general going after those who fed the overdose crises. Uh, for far too long, they threw a rock, hit their hands, and no one realized that they were the feeder of the crisis. Uh, several of my friends, uh, one I could think of who had knee surgery, three years later, he was still taking painkillers. Think about that. You're almost hooked on drugs. We focus on those who wear blue jeans on our street corners and still crack cocaine. But it's time to look at the three-piece suit pharmaceutical industries of those who are the distributors of drugs to households, giving children prescriptions, over-prescribing. And the attorney general zeroed in on that. And our course is Mayor Eric Adams. And finally... Amber Heard's close friend, British music journalist Eve Barlow, was dramatically thrown out of the bombshell Johnny Depp trial today. Sources who attended the $50 million defamation trial say that Barlow, the former deputy editor of the Music Bible NME and a New York Magazine contributor, got into hot water with the judge by texting and tweeting from the front row of the courtroom, which is usually reserved for legal counsel. Depp, 58, is suing Heard, 35, for defamation in Fairfax, Virginia, over a 2018 op-ed she wrote for the Washington Post about surviving domestic violence. Depp, who is married to Heard from 2015 to 2017, claims his ex fabricated abuse allegations in an attempt to score a huge divorce settlement, which has damaged his career. Disney dropped Depp from his leading role as Captain Jack Sparrow in the multi-billion dollar Pirates of the Caribbean franchise just four days after the op-ed ran. Meanwhile, Heard is adamant she told the truth and has countersued Depp for $100 million. In the last week of testimony, Heard's attorney, Ben Rottenberg, claimed that evidence will show his client suffered domestic abuse by Depp that took many forms, including physical, emotional, and verbal and psychological abuse, as well as sexual violence, violence at the hands of Depp. Depp denied that, and in examination and cross-examination over the last couple of days, described from his side what he says happened. The argument... Again, escalated, 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 and she just simply reached down and grabbed a can of the can of mineral spirits and uh, and uh, chucked it at my face. She threw it at my face, and it it, uh, it 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 struck me right at the bridge of the nose, sort of the forehead, bridge of the nose area, and uh, it hurt. And then he showed me a photograph on his telephone of, uh... Objection, Your Honor. Also, you're saying? It's, it's a photograph, Your Honor. As being relayed to him by Mr. Bett. He, he says he looked at it on his, on his phone. I'll rule the objection as the photograph. What was the photograph of Mr. Depp? It was a, it was a, it was a photograph of the bed, our bed, um, and on 
my side of the bed. Um, was human fecal matter. Uh, and she tried to blame it on the dogs. But why, didn't do you, why didn't you think it could have been the dogs? The dogs were... The, they're teacup Yorkies. They, they weigh about four pounds each. We talked a little bit about the term monster yesterday, correct? Yes, I've heard that word quite a lot. Yes. Yeah, and you, you testified yesterday that you used that term to placate Amber, right? And you, I believe that you testified you, that it was the word that she clung to to describe what was in her mind, not yours. Uh, the monster, more than anything, was uh, Ms. Hurd's way of referencing whether she perceived that I was on substances or taking substances. So the word monster became, it represented for her uh, the consumption of, of uh, alcohol or any other substances. Correct, and, and you didn't send that message to Miss Hurd, you sent that to Elton John. I would have been swallowed up by the monster were it not for you, um, correct? Elton, Elton, uh, can you pull up? He said, "Was it was a dear friend who um, has been uh, s s sober for I don't forty years, thirty years. So he was. Um, we'd had discussions, and he wanted to me to get uh, clean, sober." Clean. And that was and that a few was of the, the uh, excerpts, excerpts from today's trial. Interesting connection there with Sir Elton John trying to uh, help Depp get off of uh, booze, which seemed to be his his most dangerous drug of choice. Um, the uh, chances of either side winning are, are small because you have to prove actual malice for defamation law purposes. In other words, Depp would have to prove that Heard, in writing the op-ed for the Washington Post that prompted the lawsuit, knew that her statements about surviving sexualized violence were false or didn't care whether or not they were truthful. And that's some of the news for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.